0: Heavenly Father, as we come before you this day, we pray that you would pour out your Spirit upon us and that we would take this word, which is about to be read, of what it means to have a faith that's genuine, and you would help us to go deep into that faith. When we live in a thorny and thistly world, we ask that you would pour out your Spirit upon us, that we would think your thoughts, that my words now would be your words, that you would bend our wills to your own. And you would take every single one of our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your Son. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated for the reading of God's Word. Today's lesson is taken from the first letter of Peter, chapter 1, beginning with verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. the salvation of your souls. The word of the Lord. You, well, this fall, we're on a journey through Peter's first letter to the church in what is today modern Turkey. You can go there today to look at the ruins of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, Bithynia, and all over the place around there. They're still there. But um, First letter of Peter, you know, if I look at it as, as opposite sides of a coin. You know, it, it could be titled, Life's Hard. <laughs> you know, I don't think it's sell many copies, but that's when you're going to see this today as we get into the melodic line. It also could be titled, This is Discipleship. Because the great themes of Peter really covers all the basics of what it means to be a follower of Christ in any age. And so it, it's great for new believer and old believer alike as we ground our faith in the realities and the foundation of the love of Jesus Christ. So I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to First Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 6 through 9 today. We have started a couple weeks ago where we saw that great greeting that Peter had for the people as they are in the dispersion, meaning that they, they're not home. They they live there. They they weren't dispersed to there necessarily, but they don't feel at home. They're being persecuted by both the Jewish neighbors and their Greek neighbors. And so he reminds them that grace and peace may be upon them. And last week we learned that the importance of the blessing of the new birth, to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a hope that cannot be destroyed. It's undefiled, meaning it's 100% pure. It's unfading, 100% new, every day. And all, all of these truths are with us all the days of our lives, all the way into eternity. And so today we turn to what I would propose to you is the melodic line that weaves all throughout the letter that life sometimes is hard. But yet it proves that our faith is genuine. So in this passage, we discover first that we're a rejoicing people. And secondly, we learn that life has various trials. And as we're in them, we still rejoice. So let's look at this, shall we? First, we're a rejoicing people. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the genu- tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So first, we are rejoicing people, even in our trials. Well, of course, naturally, joy flows from our salvation because the foundation of our joy is because we have a, a wonderful, joyful destination. But it's so much more than that is what Peter's trying to tell the church. We learn in verses 1 through 5, because that's what he's referring to, what we've just learned the past couple weeks, that in verse 1 through 5, that we've learned that foreknowledge leads to election. Election leads to calling. Calling leads to rebirth. To be born again leads to repentance and faith through the forgiveness of our sin, through trusting in Jesus Christ. We've learned that faith in Jesus Christ leads to sanctification. Sanctification leads to our obedience, and obedience eventually leads to our glorification. That's just in five verses. We've just received in the past couple weeks a 50,000-foot view of a systematic theology course. It's really quite amazing. Brothers and sisters, Peter's reminding us that there's nothing in the Bible that's just there merely to be known. It's not as if we take our notes on Sunday, we put them up on the shelf, and we say, okay, I got that. Next. No. In this, you rejoice. In all your trials, Peter is saying, even though you're grieving, he is saying, the reason you're able to keep any joy up in your trials is because you know all the doctrine. Now, I know. There are some people, because I've had some people tell me this in my 14 years, you know, oh, Gene, doctrine divides. Jesus unites. Who needs doctrine? I just want to know Jesus. And then there's the other side of that, which says, doesn't, it's not that important. Basically, they're just intellectually lazy and not willing to go into the deeper things of the Lord. But Peter is saying, stop you know you don't look he says to both of those groups when your life hits the fan and it will what will you do what will you turn when you're suffering think about that how well do you know and understand these things the foreknowledge of God being the elect being born again genuine repentance Full faith and trust in Jesus Christ so that you're justified by faith, through grace, in Jesus Christ alone. Sprinkled by the blood, knowing the atonement of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for us. Being sanctified, obedience, glorification. These are the things Peter is saying, that's what we rejoice in. That will hold us. Don't forget them. Verse 6 shows that your Christianity is far more than doctrine. You don't just put it up on the shelf. You use it day by day by day. But it's not less than doctrine. You'll never deal with your suffering or get through it unless you can rejoice, unless you soak in these great truths. And you can look at all these wonderful things and say, God is moving heaven and on earth for me. And you, you savor these things. And so therefore, in these things, we rejoice. It doesn't stop there. He says, well, we rejoice, but life has trials. And in the midst of those trials, we still rejoice. Though now for a little while, for the second half verse 6, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. This is a paradox. It's not a contradiction. You are rejoicing and you're grieving. They're both in the present tense, they're both happening right now. It doesn't say you're rejoicing though you've been through troubles. It doesn't say you're not rejoicing now because you're troubled. It says you are rejoicing now and you are deeply troubled. Now, this is where our American hymnody at times really fails us, okay? Uh, We no longer sing it anymore, but you know that song, At the Cross. It's catchy, right? We sing it. We used to sing it. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. (laughs) The last time we sang that, you should have seen some of your faces. And I, I, I thought to the Lord, I'm undone. Forgive me, Lord. Because we're not always happy. Right? Life's hard. It's not true. It sends the message, you receive Jesus Christ, you might experience some suffering, but you don't really feel it. Praise God, there's victory in Jesus. Well, Peter's telling me that's not true, all right, and he's telling us it's not true. As a matter of fact, I want to go so far as to say that kind of attitude misses the beauty of the Christian life. First of all, the Bible again and again shows us believers that they just don't experience pain and suffering. They're actually affected by it. They're actually grieved and troubled by it. The best example of that is Job. Imagine Job in 21st century American suburbia. His friends come to him and say, All your children are dead. Your business is destroyed. So what does Job do? The text reminds us that he stood up, ripped his garments, shaved his head, and screamed. And yet, the text says, in all this, Job sinned not. We would say, well, you're taking this a little far, dude. He's lost the victory. His faith isn't genuine. Would you say that to Job? I don't think so. Right? Scripture says, In all these things, Job sinned not. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, We are, are, present tense, persecuted but not forsaken, cast down but not destroyed. We're perplexed but not in despair. This is what Peter's talking about. For us. For the early church, what the Bible actually teaches us is that Christians are both sadder and happier than anyone around them. Those two extremes, or the normal characteristic, is somebody who's affected by the good news of Jesus Christ. It's okay to be sad at the state of our world. You look at Jesus, who had a perfect relationship with the Father, and yet he was known as a man of sorrows. Why? He's God. He had a perfect relationship with his Father. He's holy. And as you strive as a disciple of Jesus and you pursue walking with Jesus and holiness, the more you grow in Jesus, the more you're going to see the brokenness around you. And when you finally let the gospel sink deep into your heart, you have enough hope to finally admit how bad things are. You feel the hurt of others. You see how some people are. So, when the Bible says, This is what it means to be a Christian, Ezekiel, I will take out of your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, what does that mean? It means that if the gospel doesn't make you more tender hearted, if the gospel doesn't make you more sad at the state of the world, Probably the gospel hasn't really sunk in. Christians don't just experience suffering, they're troubled by it. Why would it be any different from us over our Lord? On the other hand, verse 8, we have such hope. It's a sublime hope. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That is something that is always operating in you in Jesus Christ, even when you're in grief. (laughs) That we're, as we're growing, even in the midst of grieving, the real Christian life is an adventure, it's an exciting life, and it's never boring. I used to tell my kids, it's a sin to be bored. I haven't been bored since 1972. <laughs> Not true. I was the embellishing dad, I freely admit. Yeah. But what this is telling us is Christians always have a balance, my brothers and sisters. Always has a balance. You're always experiencing more grief than before, and yet you have more joy that you can't even express in words is phenomenal. The problems that come up in the Christian life, the problems arise when we don't strike that balance. The solution, the power of the Christian life where you get back into that balance because a Christian who's really dealing with life is somebody who rejoices even in the midst of the grief and doesn't Has such hope that it doesn't overwhelm them. And there's times in each and every one of our lives, it does. The glory of the Christian life is that we have a hope that overwhelms that grief. It doesn't erase it, it's still there, but it sweetens it, it overwhelms it, and it balances it. Annie Johnson Flint was one of those Christians. Born in Violin, New Jersey, to a wonderful, godly Christian family. She wanted to be a teacher of children. And so she gave her life to Christ at age 8, and she grew passionately for Jesus Christ. Her father died in her teen years. And so she went and graduated from normal school. What, What was a normal school, you know? What would it mean to go to abnormal school? I graduated from abnormal high you know? But that's what she did. She graduated from normal school, and she was set out to be a teacher, and she taught for a couple years, then her mom had a stroke. She had to come home and take care of her mom, and suddenly her mom died. So it was just her and her sister, and as soon as her mom died, she was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. And back then, there was nothing they could do about it. Those of you who have arthritis know what she's dealing with. She was an invalid at age 23, but she could write poetry. And so she wrote poetry as a mission from her bedside as her sister had to come and turn her over every half hour so that she, just gripping with pain. But she wrote poetry to glorify God and to comfort the body of Christ. Here's what she wrote. She died before she was 30. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow sweeter. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, ere the day is half done, When we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. The Father, both thee and thy load, will upbear. His love has no limits. His love has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Amen? Yeah. Written from a person who knew that balance. My friends, when we're walking through trials and sorrows, and we all will, it's like being a furnace in a house. The colder the air gets outside, And for a while, the house inside starts to get cool, and then suddenly click. The heat comes on, and the whole house is warmed, and the cold is overwhelmed. It's the trials that makes you go to your resources. It makes you go to your roots as a Christian. You go to the gospel, and you look at all that our Lord Jesus has done for you. That's what the trials do. And the trials push you toward the joy, and it even enhances the joy, and the joy kicks in the heat. And it overwhelms the trials, but the trials are still there. I'll go so far to say, if you enter a season of trials and you have no sorrow and tears, you have a problem. If you're one of those believers who say, Praise God. I have victory in Jesus. I want to let you know that's the way cults work. (laughs) That's brainwashing. It's okay to embrace the pain, embrace the sorrow, because it's not the way the gospel works. The Christian is both happier and sadder all at the same time. And the gospel makes you a far more sensitive person to others and a far more joyful person that can't even express the joy because we don't have words for it in the midst of such suffering. So number one, you're not going to be able to face trials without knowing your doctrine. And number two, as you experience those trials, you have unspeakable joy. Matter of fact, it's the trials that kick it in. Notice in verse 9, Peter wraps up this section. As we live this way, we obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the genuineness. You're not abandoning him, you're still with him, you're still here. It's genuine Christianity. And when the world looks at such a people, they look at them and say, Wow, there's something to that. I wonder what that is. And we can show them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would grant that we could now, today, learn to trust you fully regardless of our circumstances. Some of us are facing mm-hmm. very difficult times right now. And we realize that our suffering is here because of a world that's, in Genesis 3 language, full of thorns and thistles. It's full of sin. But you have promised as we place our trust in you, you'll monitor those trials. You're in control. You are sovereign over them. And you walk with us in those trials in such a way that we become like your son, Jesus. So now, Holy Spirit, we ask you to help us to follow him and to walk along his path, that through our trials and sufferings, we would achieve your glory. And we would obtain the salvation of our souls with an uh, ever-increasing measure. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.